You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our series. We have seen Paul talk about our new identity in chapter 1. He says that we are sealed, we are chosen, we are seated in the heavenlies. He adopted us, he predestined us, he redeemed us, he lavished us with his grace. He's given us an inheritance, and, and he has made known to us the mystery of his will. It's who we are now in our new identity. And then he goes into chapter 2 and talks about our identity before Jesus, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, that, that we were, we were uh, following the world, the devil, the desires and passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. But then we see the identity of God, but God rich in mercy and love and kindness and his grace made us alive. So our identity in Christ, our identity before Christ, God's identity. And because of he made us alive, we are now fellow citizens or joint heirs in this new kingdom. We are equal and we are a new race called in Christ. And he has built us like blocks, not using the old temple model, but the new temple that he is building one block at a time with his followers, this multicultural, multiracial, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group in the world making this multicolored, multi-ethnic temple. And we are a block in that, he says. This is our identity. This is our position. This is who we are. This is the calling that you have received in Christ, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the earth. And then we come to chapter 4, and Paul says, therefore, therefore. Every time therefore is there, you ask, what's it there for? He's looking back over all that he has said in these three chapters. All that he has said about identity. This chapter marks the principal transition in this epistle. Paul turns from the doctrinal, the theological, the positional, and he's now going to talk about the practical. Now that all of this is true, now that your identity has been set and explained and understood and confirmed in Christ, Now, therefore, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And for the rest of the chapter, 4, 5, and 6, he's going to talk about what does it look like practically for us to live faithfully, walking in a manner worthy of the calling and the position we have experienced in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And as he begins, he says this repeated statement, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. A prisoner of the Lord. Now, why did Paul say this again? Because he'd already said this in chapter 3, verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He seems to be wanting to 
reemphasize something here. Before he can go into talking about what life looks like in a, 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 a worthy walk, before we can talk about what a worthy walk looks like, he wants to clarify that he's a prisoner. And he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome who has imprisoned him. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Caesar who gave the order. He says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure everyone knows he's not in prison because the world's treating him bad. He's not in prison because some higher up in the secular world gave an authority and gave the decree to imprison him. He is in prison by the will of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Paul's ministry included suffering. And I think he wants us to know before we get into the practical how are you to live, that the life that is worthy, the manner of walk that is worthy of the calling of chapters 1, 2, and 3 is a life that includes suffering. It's not a long line. People don't sign up for suffering. But, he, but I think he wants us to set us, I think he wants to build a foundation that if you're going to live this worthy life, if you're going to live this worthy walk and walk this talk, it includes suffering. The most important thing in Paul's life was not safety, it was not security, it was not a retirement plan, but it was the mission of the king. He did not go about setting off on his own agenda. The king was his authority. Jesus he was a prisoner of Jesus. And so before we get into anything in four, five, and six, it seems like there's a question that needs to be asked of myself, of all of us who have received this calling, and the question is, are you a prisoner? Do you consider yourself a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Because perhaps if we don't consider ourselves or see ourselves or live the life of a prisoner, we may not even understand what this worthy walk looks like for four, five, and six. Is he your authority? Is his agenda your agenda? Do you belong to Jesus? Do you say to the king, send me, I'll do anything, go anywhere, I'm yours? A believer from a house church in Iran explained that people who join the church have to sign a covenant, a written agreement. Not unlike here, when you join and go through base camp here, you sign something that basically says something like you're going to attend, you're going to get in a small group, you're going to serve, you're going to give financially. It's a commitment. It's an upfront understanding of what's necessary. And, and so the church in Iran has the same sort of document, but let me read what's on their statements. Number one, you have to agree to lose your property. Number two, you have to be willing to be thrown in jail. And three, you have to be willing to be martyred for your faith. Could I just go ahead and pass those out right now? We can all just sign that and then we can move on, right? Wouldn't that be nice? The believers in Iran are completely under 
persecution, either executed or imprisoned for years. But here's the fact about this. This is what's so interesting. The current research by Operation World says that the church in Iraq, evangelical Christians in Iraq, are the fastest growing evangelical population in the world. In the world. They've passed China as the fastest growing Christian population in the world. And that's their covenant. Lose your property, be willing to go to jail, and be willing to be martyred. One question we've been asking in our small group as we've been studying Ephesians and, and, and thirsting and hungering for this kind of relational depth in church and in, in, in small group and with each other, can we make this kind of commitment, this deeply connected commitment that the Bible is talking about in this new church, and this in Christ church? And one of the questions that we keep asking is, can this really happen in a non-persecuting, comfortable culture where it appears that we have no need? Because when you're going to church or you're in your home group or you're in your house church in other countries and you say, hey, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, will you watch my kids because I heard that tomorrow I'm going to jail? That's a different dynamic relationally. Would you agree? And they're coming tomorrow to burn down my house. Can I live with you when they burn it down? That's a different relational context where the depth of connection, the depth of intimacy, the depth of desiring and passion and need for one another is very difficult for us to understand. In a culture that's individualistic, I don't need anyone. And yet this is what the Bible calls us to, that kind of deeply connected intimacy and love and passion for one another that we're prisoners. We would do anything for each other. Is it really possible? And we've come to the conclusion that yes, <laughs> yes, Paul would say it's possible. But there are caveats and there are conditions. And chapter 4, I believe, begins the conversation to what it looks like to have this New Testament, one building, one new temple, loving, growing, deeply connected relationship, fully committed to each other, what it's going to take. And in a word... It's going to take that God's people grow up. That would be a good place to amen. You want to just amen? You know what? We need to grow the heck up. <laughs> that was good. I like that. Uh, so, if you're going to have this kind of church, especially in a culture like ours, Paul is saying this kind of church can have, there's an assumption that we're going to have to see ourselves as prisoners of Jesus, and we are going to have to embrace being intentionally, to be intentional about growing up. 
And then he lays it out. Verses 3 through 6, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Whoo! That's an amen. You think Paul's trying to say something about oneness and unity? So the first thing he begins to speak to us, the first condition or the caveat, if we're going to experience this kind of depth in relational connected church, is that we've got to grow up in unity. We've got to grow up in unity. If we're going to be united, then there are some characteristics or virtues necessary for people to be able to be united. Of all the things Paul could have chosen, why does he choose these right here? Perhaps it's because if we are really going to experience the depth of relationship that the Bible talks about in the New Testament church, these four or five are absolutely foundational or critical to making that happen. And perhaps it cannot happen. We cannot be unified if these things are not present. So let's go through the list. Humility. Everybody's pursuing humility. It's amazing the depth of how people are rushing to be humble. That's sarcasm. But for unity to exist, Paul says we must be humble, selfless people. We must be living for the good of others, not living for ourselves. Humility in the Greek and the Roman world was not a good thing. It was uncommon and had a very negative connotation. As a matter of fact, it was a derogatory term and had a negative connotation, suggesting people were low-minded and a groveling servility. Pride was valued, knowledge was, was valued, intellectualism, power were the best virtues of the day, not unlike our day today. Humility was considered weakness, and Christians were ridiculed for their humility, as we might be today. This word was taken by Christianity out of this negative derogatory context to represent a very distinctly Christian virtue. Humility. Humbleness. It's people who have a teachable spirit. They're not know-it-alls. Humility is the opposite of what we would call a questioning spirit. You ever notice a lot of people have legitimate questions, but then there are people who have a questioning spirit. Let me flesh that out a little bit. Uh, so, Madison, I know you are. I'll talk to your mom, Cindy. So, you, you determine whether this is a questioning spirit or this is a question. All right, everybody ready? What'd you wear that for? Was that a question seeking general information? <laughs> that was a questioning spirit. What'd you do that for? 
turn the lights down before church so it's so dark you can't see? Why can't we sit anywhere we want? Why do we have to be in a small group to be a partner? Are those real questions? Like, do you want me to give you the answer to that? Or have you already inserted your agenda? I'm about to. (laughs) Don't encourage me more. Your agenda and your know-it-all spirit into the question. Your negative, critical connotation is a questioning spirit. And some people have questioning spirits rather than, hey, what are small groups like here? That's a great question. I would love to talk to you about that. But those who have questioning spirits are the opposite. They're they're inserting their agenda with a critical and a negative and judgmental. They've already made the decision. You shouldn't be wearing that. I don't like it. Right? Parents are great at this with our kids, aren't we? Why are you going there? Why are you hanging out with them? Our kids are great when they do it to us. Why am I not allowed to do anything? Why are you so mean? Well, is that a question for information? Or have you already determined that I am mean? Because I'm about to go to a level of meanness, honey, you have not seen before. No, what Paul is saying is this humility is necessary for unity. A teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. Legitimate questions are welcome, but a questioning spirit derails unity. Amen? Yeah. Humbleness. Then he goes on to say, you know, this, this questioning spirit is a word pride. There are always people in the church who have a great pride. They think they know how things should be done better, and they want everyone to know that they know how it should be done better. They read a book or they listen to a podcast, and all of a sudden they're experts on how things should be done. That pride and unteachable spirit, Paul said, will destroy unity. We need humility. Then he says gentleness. Gentleness. It does not mean timidity. It involves being mild-spirited or self-controlled. Strength under control. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. This is a big one. Fruit of the Spirit. People who say hurtful things to others. People who are too blunt, who are too harsh, who are too judgmental. Quick to share their opinion. Quick to make sure they are heard. Dominate the room. Deep need to be thought well of. Need praise. Need affirmation. Then they say something like, that's just who I am. And I would say to you, that's who you were in Ephesians 2 when you were dead. 
But now you are alive in Christ. That's not who you are anymore. And if you are still that, then perhaps you are not alive in Christ. Gentleness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence that the Spirit of Christ lives in you because out of you comes a gentle spirit. Gentleness. Harshness will destroy unity. And then he says, everyone's favorite, say it with me, patience. Aren't these words great? I mean, like, it's like, we're all going to line up for humility, gentleness, and patience. Just start the line right here. That line is a short line. You ever notice? That's a short line. Patience. A lack of patience displays a lack of humility and a lack of love. Patience is another fruit of the Spirit. It joins gentleness and the others as a fruit of the Spirit, as evidence that the Spirit of Christ is in you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. So no patience, no love. Don't be impatient with me and then tell me that you love me. Love is patience. No patience, no love. A lack of patience gets annoyed easily with other people. Anybody get annoyed easily with other people? You might be annoyed with me right now. Or Paul. (laughs) Patience describes the ability to endure suffering and a reluctance to avenge wrongs. Nobody talks to me that way. Really? Paul's in prison because a lot of people talk to him that way. Bearing with one another in love. Another word that means to put up with each other in love. Love covers a multitude of sins we hear. This is the only way marriage works. Can I get an amen? The old saying in a movie way before most of your time, love means never having to what? Is that the stupidest line you've ever heard in your life? Love means never having to say you're sorry. That must be a single person living in a cave in Afghanistan that never sees another human being. I feel like my spiritual gift is saying I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't find it in the Bible, but I'm married. I have kids. My whole life is being sorry. I'm sorry right now. For everything I'm about to say, if it's messed up in the future, I'm sorry for it. I, I, that's just, that's love. Forgive me. I was wrong. Bearing with one another in love. Many times if someone hurts us or doesn't do what we want them to do, we quit, we leave, we shut them out. I don't want to be friends with them anymore. I'm going to another church where everybody will treat me well. They'll value me the way I need and deserve to be valued. 
You're not going to have unity if we cannot bear with one another in love, if we cannot be patient, if we cannot be gentle, and we cannot be humble. Paul is really digging in deep here. And then he says, eager to maintain unity. So these things, unity is active. It's intentional. We should be zealous and intentional about maintaining unity. It should be a goal of ours to be in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To do this, he says, we must renounce the opposite of all of these things. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk with gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. And we must renounce indifference and passivity in order to intentionally be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Amen? You can be unified with these people, Paul says, but without these things, I don't know that you can be unified with people who don't carry these virtues. We are a family. We are a family. And when people don't carry these, we forgive. We bear our burdens. We, we care for one another. And we bring them back in. But you are not going to have unity with people who don't consistently and have as their agenda Christ's agenda. It's hard to have unity. Matter of fact, I think Paul would say it's impossible. And it's not just for unity's sake. Let's all just get along. Paul says, how can we not? Based on verse 4, there's one body. There's one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God, one Father. How can we not be unified? Because we're all in this big adopted family. We literally are brothers and sisters in Christ being built in his temple as stones and blocks of oneness and citizenship together. I do believe this can happen. I do believe this can happen in the church. Even in America, in Western culture, I believe that. But these caveats and conditions are so important or it will not happen. Holy Spirit love and unity are confined they don't have to just be confined to persecuted countries only. But it takes us being intentional to do this. Titus chapter 3, Paul writes again, verses 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then warning him twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Woo. So the opposite of this intentional pursuit of unity is to hold accountable, it's to confront once, twice, and then that's it. Unless there's repentance, such a person you should have nothing to do with. So if you're hanging around people consistently with the questioning spirits, why? They're warped. Not my words, Paul's. They're warped and they're sinful and they're already self They're condemning themselves. 
Since we are blocks and stones in the new temple that God is building, division and criticism is like taking a sledgehammer to this new temple. When we criticize the stones and the blocks, division cannot be acceptable nor tolerated in the new citizenship of those who are in Christ. So we need to grow up in unity. Then he says we need to grow up in ministry. Verses 7 through 11, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I'm not going to explain all that. Just simply, Jesus is the authority of all things. He goes up, he goes down, he does whatever he needs to do. So he has the authority to give us gifts. And then he gave the apostles, the prophets. He gave the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity. Grow up in ministry, he says. The ministry of what? The ministry of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The good works that God gave you to do before the foundations of the earth. The good works that he had for you, and because you couldn't do them without the Holy Spirit living in you, he had to call you, save you, seal you, predestine you, so that you were able to fulfill the gifts, the calling, the good works that he has given you to do. Jesus gave us gifts. Paul calls them grace given to build up the body of Christ, the church, to equip the members, the, the servants, the prisoners of Christ. This is not saving grace. This is ministry grace. And these grace gifts were not given for you. They were given for who? Other people. You were given this ministry or this grace or these ministry gifts to extend the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. And Paul says you cannot, you cannot grow up if you do not serve. So if someone is serving, there was not serving, there's no reason to believe that they are a mature follower of Christ. Because he says it's in your serving as we see, as we keep reading the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. The only way to get to maturity is by using the gifts and serving. Your gift is needed. God has gifted you and given you leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He's given you the gifts not only in you, the grace gifts of spiritual gifts and gifts in you to accomplish these good works. He's also given you leadership around you to equip you to pursue them and to be discipled and equipped in them to help you grow up in ministry. And the Father's desire is to see all of his kids grow up. As a father of four, I, I, I want my kids to grow up. That's the heart of a father. No team puts up with players who refuse to contribute. 
No army puts up with soldiers who don't carry their own weight. The church needs to continue to encourage its people to engage in their gifts, their calling, and their grace ministry. You see, everyone, Jesus said, is invited into the boat. Everyone's invited. But when you come into the boat, you have to grab an oar and start rowing. And Jesus made it clear on multiple occasions, you don't have to get in the boat. Please don't feel that kind of pressure. Please don't feel that repression. You don't have to get in the boat. You don't have to go on the journey. He's simply saying, if you do go on the journey and get in the boat, you have to grab an oar and start rowing. So many people, yes, I want to get in the boat, but I just want to take a ride. And I want to look at the beautiful scenery out on the water and the trees. Jesus says, no. This is not a tour boat. This is not an entertainment ride at Dollywood. You get in this boat. You don't have to. You don't have to. But if you do, grab an oar. Grab an oar. We have to grow up in our service, Paul says. We don't need ninja Christians who slide in and slide out. Did you see them? I don't know. I saw something. It's like a shadow. They were here, but I don't know that they were here. They were gone. Maybe for a season, people come and check things out, and they're just kind of feeling their way around. But ultimately, for unity's sake, we must grow up in our ministry and service. And then he says, lastly, I want you to grow up in maturity. In maturity. Beginning in verse 11, he says, and he gave the apept, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, or this is just humanhood, mature mankind, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together in every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. In love. One of the most debilitating issues facing the church today is the lack of maturing of her members. Churches are filled with the lack of maturing members. Filled with children who never grow up to become parents. The goal is to be like Jesus, to be in his fullness, the fullness of Christ living in us. When people look at us or get to know us, they should feel like they're getting to know Jesus. 
We enter the new life as babies, and we need to grow up and mature. This phrase is literally says, into a perfect, full-grown man or woman. If someone is 30 years old and acts like a 10-year-old, we say they are developmentally challenged. Something is wrong. And in the church world, there are people who say they've been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years and still act like an infant, a child. Verse 14, he says that we may no longer be like children, emotionally driven, easily offended, sloshing back and forth on issues, new teachings, every wind of doctrine, every wise thing that comes out in a book or a movie or a podcast. We just, yeah, that sounds, hey, that sounds good. That sounds good. I believe that. Even when it contradicts God's word. We've turned the place of God's church, his mysterious church, into something that we go to for an hour once a week. And we do not understand all that is going on as the New Testament church. Something that God has designed to function as a family has been reduced for some to an optional weekly meeting. And Paul is calling us not to attend a weekly meeting. He's calling us to be prisoners who are captured up in intentionally pursuing the unity of my new identity in Christ. Intentionally pursuing ministry and service with the grace gifts that God has given me. Intentionally pursuing growing up Past infant, child, teenager, young adult, parents. If not, we will struggle to walk worthy. We will struggle to experience this incredible, mysterious church that has now been made known to us that we are one and we are one together. I think the Bible teaches that God is not looking for casual, nominal Christians. I am looking for prisoners, Paul says. Fellow prisoners who intentionally embrace, who choose to grow up. You get people who view themselves as prisoners of Jesus. You get people who are intentionally committed to growing up in unity committed to growing up in their service and ministry, committed to growing up in maturity of spiritual depth and intimacy with God their Father, then you have a chance for this supernatural, deeply connected, dynamic, loving community called the church. And Paul says, if you don't have that... It, it, it's, it's going to be, it, it might be just impossible. But if you do, these people, these people can be one. And when, when these people are connected at such a deep level, something happens. That they fully love God with all their heart. They fully love their other brothers and sisters in Christ with all their heart. 
What would happen if a group of people sought Jesus so fervently, loved one another so sacrificially, and shared the gospel boldly in the world? What would happen? The last word of this section, love wins. Love wins. Amen? Jesus said, you will know my disciples by their love for one another. It's possible. It's possible. There there are a lot of caveats. There are a lot of conditions. Paul's laying them out. It's possible. But if we did it, if we embraced it, if we intentionally grew up in unity, service, and maturity, I promise, I promise, the Bible promises love wins. Love would win. Amen? Father, we proclaim that we love you. But Lord, it's not about just saying that we love you. It's about intentionally growing up as a prisoner of Christ. Help us to grow up in love. Love for you and love for each other. We know this is a long shot. We know it is. We know it's rare. We know it is. But we also know that your word is true. And if your word is true, and we know that it is, if we commit ourselves to intentionally being involved in growing up in these areas, we know that you could win. Therefore, we know that love could win. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.